So open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 12. And let's stand together and we're going to read verses 9 through 21. We're going to read the rest of this chapter. And then we're going to pray. And then we're going to open up the Word of God together this morning. So let's look at this. Beginning in verse 9, Paul writes these words. This is the Word of God. He writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Father in heaven, my desire this morning is that you would be exalted that you would be lifted up, that you would be magnified, and Lord, that your word would have the weight in our hearts that it ought to have. Father, that we would not be like so many in this world who, Father, hear your word and perhaps receive it as some kind of a suggestion or a good idea, and we subtract from it the very authority of your word. Lord, it's by your word that we know you. It's by your word that we come to understand your will and your ways. It's by your word that we know the way of salvation. It is by your word, Lord God, that you awaken dead hearts by your Holy Spirit. It's by your word that you bring faith to dead hearts. It's by your word that you sanctify us and make us to conform to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by By your word that we have hope and a certainty that, Lord, our salvation is real and it's true and that we will one day see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. It's by your word that we live. Your word, Father, is true and it's holy and it's glorious because you are true and holy and glorious. So I pray that you will move powerfully in our midst this morning. I offer myself to you today, Lord, as a living sacrifice. Let my words, let the meditation of my heart, let it be pleasing in your sight. Let my words be the very words that you would have me speak. Accompany them with the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. So that my preaching, in my preaching, would be heard the voice of Christ. And Father, I pray for this congregation that you would arrest their attention. That Lord God, right now, 
you would inflame their hearts and their souls to hear your truth. That you would lean their hearts toward you. That, that Father God, you would open their ears. I pray that you be glorified in everything that takes place here now. I pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, beloved, we just read these words, right? From Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And they're incredible words, right? These these pithy and concise and rapid-fire instructions from Paul as to how we are to live as Christians, as to how we are to live in a way that, 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 that pleases the Lord, right? How we're to live as those who have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, so that we might reflect the very character of Christ, right? Which these words describe. And they're very straightforward, right? But here's my concern. Here's my concern. My concern is that when we read a series of verses like this, that they may not have the full effect in us that they ought. Let me explain. I want you to follow with me on this. It's very easy for us, isn't it, to read these words and to agree that they're right and they're true and to say, yeah, you know what? Christians should certainly strive to live that way, right? But then to sort of pass over them lightly without really thinking about them, without really considering their depth, right? Without really unfolding them and thinking about what is this saying to me? How is God speaking to me here? And I say that because if we're honest, it's possible to read this text, not only this one, but others as well. It's possible to read this text and then a few minutes later only vaguely remember what was said and not really give it the weight that it should have. So the question that's before us is this. How do we approach this series of exhortations, this series of instructions, these series of commands. How do we approach these words and draw life from them? How do we approach these words and receive them for all that they are worth? That's the big question. So what we're going to do this morning, before we ever consider even verse 9 of chapter 12, is this. What we're going to do this morning is I want us to consider together how do we receive and respond to the Word of God rightly? How do we receive and respond to the Word of God in a spiritually profitable manner? How do these words impact our lives to the greatest degree? And I would say to you, it begins, first of all, with a proper perspective, okay? A proper perspective. Why do I say that? Well, here's the deal. What Paul is setting forth here as the character of the true follower of Christ and and for which we should strive by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, we need to understand, first of all, that this is not a, a religion and it is not either legalism. Rather, it is a mercy-driven and grace-empowered obedience that Paul is calling us to, okay? In other words, here's the deal. I find that with Christians, even some that have been in the faith for a very long time, there's oftentimes great error in their thinking regarding the place of scriptural commands in our lives. 
Religion says, the idea of religion is this, that if I do X, Y, and Z, then I can earn salvation with God. If I keep all the rules, you know, the best that I can, if I keep all these words as best I can, then my good's going to outweigh my bad, and so at the end of time, God will accept me. That is simply wrong. It is, it is dead wrong. Paul's teaching in this epistle to the Romans, right? From the very beginning has been what? That justification, right? That a right standing before God cannot be achieved by human works, but has been accomplished for us on our behalf by the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Now that's the very first thing, right? That, that, you know, we cannot, there's no way for us, there's no way for us to achieve salvation, to achieve a right standing with God by our human works. We can't be saved by the works of the flesh. Nobody is saved that way. Romans 3 makes that abundantly clear, right? Paul said, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophet bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward to be the propitiation by His blood. To be received by faith. These words that we read in Romans 12, verses 9 and following, listen to me, they are not a matter of earning merit with God. They're not a matter of earning merit with God. They are rather the right response of a soul that is truly received from God the grace of Christ, right? In fact, there's no way that we can even begin to live as Paul describes here unless we have already been given a new life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Right? So this isn't, these commands are not a matter of human effort at salvation. Do these and live. That's not it. Rather, it is a matter of grace-driven and mercy-driven obedience, right? Moreover, This isn't legalism. And I mean that in the way that, you know, people throw this term around in churches. They don't really understand what legalism is. This is not actually true legalism. This is the the Christian view of legalism, okay? But the legalism I'm talking about is this. More times than I can count. More times than I can count. I have heard people respond to biblical commands. I have heard them respond to the exhortation to keep those commands as legalism. You're preaching legalism. And it's incompatible with grace. And if they know the Bible at all, generally what they'll do is they'll pull this verse out of context. They'll pull out 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17 that says this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And they'll say, see? God, you know, God is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit is, there's freedom. You can do whatever you want. Now, listen. Of course I'm going to agree with Scripture. 
that statement, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, is true. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But listen, not freedom to live in whatever manner you choose and to sin and to live in a manner contrary to the character of the life of Christ and call yourself a Christian. You don't have that freedom. That's an ignorance. That is an evidence of ignorance and foolishness. And I'm just going to say it, stupidity regarding the intent of God's grace. And that's actually made clear by the verse that follows. See, if you keep it in context, you don't get to come up with those kinds of interpretations. Because the verse that follows says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the freedom here that Paul is delighting in, the freedom that that Paul is talking about is a freedom that leads to obedience and to a greater reflection of the character and the glory of Christ in our lives. Right? You see that? Do you see that? Paul says as much back in Romans chapter 6. We read a portion of this, you know, just a few minutes ago. Where he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Why? Because you have. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And he answers that question that some people like to ask. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he says, by no means. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So listen to me. Calling Christians to holiness, calling Christians to obedience, to the commands of God in Scripture, calling Christians to to righteousness, that's not legalism. That's not legalism. It is in reality a call to freedom. The freedom of obedience to God. You with me? So here's what Paul is saying. What Paul is calling us to here is a mercy-driven, grace-empowered obedience to the freedom of obeying God for our good and for His praise and for His honor, for His glory and for the sake of the gospel. So Paul, though, you know, through his exhortation and his commands, is calling us to pursue, really, Christ-likeness in our lives. What we're seeing in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, is just this. Look, this is the character of Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have heard him say, follow me, and you are following him, then, therefore, you must walk in the way that what? Christ walked. And when you read verses 9 through 21, that's exactly how Christ walked, isn't it? Isn't it? It's the way that he treated those who were his, you know, who were, who were his, his true believers. It's the way that he interacted with them, right? His love towards them was sincere, right? But it's also the way that he dealt with his enemies, isn't it? Isn't it? Paul's getting here like, this is what, this is what your life is to look like. And there ought to be a desire. Like, here's the thing. You want to measure whether or not you're saved? Here's a big question. Do you desire to obey God or not? There's a lot of people running around that call themselves Christians that have no desire to follow God that ought to stop fooling themselves. That ought to stop pretending like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. No, you're not. 
If you have no desire to obey Christ, if you have no desire to obey the commandments of the living God, then don't fool yourself and say, I'm a Christian. Don't give me this bunk about, well, uh, you know, all the different excuses that we try to use for why there's not a desire present in our lives to obey the master who has saved us. Are you with me? There are too many people that throw grace around loosely. And what they're talking about is not the grace of Scripture. They're talking about the cheap grace that requires no crucifixion with Christ and no dying to self and no rising to walk in the newness of life. you hearing me. Are you hearing me, beloved? So it follows then this. If we're going to receive these words, Romans 12, verse 9 and following, so that they truly have their full and good effect in our lives... I would say to you that there are three things that must be in place. Perhaps there's more, but the three essentials that must be in place are this. Number one, number one, we must approach these commands of the Lord prayerfully. We need to approach them prayerfully, okay? In other words, we need to approach them with the realization that we can only live out these commands to the degree that we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit within us, right? There is no native power in us to obey these commands of the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit to strengthen and to enable us to hear these words and then to do them. Are you with me? we got to hear them and then do them. And we got to rely upon the Spirit of God to give us the strength and to give us the willpower to do so. In other words, we, with Augustine, we pray, Father, command what you will. But grant what you command. In other words, we hear these commands. Give us the grace to do them, okay? Then second, the second thing that's got to be in place is this. We need to look to Christ continually as the one who lived and died and rose again for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins and, and given the newness of life. But also, I mentioned this just a second ago, we need to look to him as our perfect example. Okay, as our perfect example, the very embodiment of these commands that we are reading in God's word. In other words, here's the deal. We just need to look to Christ, see how he walked, see how these commands were fulfilled in his life and then do the same. That's the idea here. So we need to look to Jesus not only as our Redeemer. He is that. He is both Savior, but He's also the standard that we're called to emulate. You with me? So He's both Savior and standard. He's Savior and He's standard for us. And then the last thing. We need to approach these words that Paul writes as they truly are. We need to approach these words as they truly are. And what are these words? They are not merely the words of Paul. They are the word of God. The God-breathed, inspired word of the living God. Okay? We need to have a proper reverence for and a proper posture toward God's word. Toward His authoritative Higher than any other authority, including your opinion. His authoritative, perfect, holy, inerrant, 
infallible, sufficient, and revelatory word. You heard me praying this. It's true. We only know God by God's word. How do we come to know God's will and his way? How do we come to know his person? How do we come to know the triune God? It's through its self-revelation in his holy word. And we need to hold the word of God in the reverence and in the awe that it should hold. We must love and treasure Scripture. His Word, God's Word, must hold supreme weight in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. It needs to fashion the way that we think and the way that we live. It's got to be the essential foundation of our lives. Again, God's revelation must hold supremacy in our lives as the God-breathed Word. Now, I want you to think about this with me. I want you to be honest. There are some people, some celebrities, that when you hear them speak, you hang on every word. Whatever they say, you're going to believe that. Some of you Tucker Carlson lovers, right? They're all upset because Tucker's not on Fox. I'm not watching Fox anymore because Tucker's not on Fox. Okay. But don't have a cow over it, right? Some of us, we listen to these these pundits and everybody else, and buddy, we hang on their every word. I want you to ask yourself, do you do the same with the word of the living God? And before you say, oh, of course I do, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. How much time do you spend, wherever it is, just waiting to see what somebody has to say about this or that. And how much time do you actually spend in the Word of God that speaks authoritatively to all of it? Hmm? The Word of God needs to hold a higher place in all of our hearts. And in fact, that's what I want to put our hearts and our minds to think about for the remainder of this time this morning. We need to pray. We need to see Christ as our example And the Word of God needs to hold the highest place in our hearts. I want you to turn to Psalm 19. I was going to do 119, but the truth is, we would be here until next Sunday doing Psalm 119. So instead, I went to Psalm 19, and the reason that I did is because it is a concise and a a commanding summary of the authority and the perfection and the power and the majesty of God's Word. It is David's spirit-inspired testimony regarding the Word of God and recording for us what ought to be our response to it. So, turn with me to Psalm 19 and let's read verses 7 through 14 together and then I want to take them apart. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. 
even much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What do we see in here? What is David saying to us in the second half of this psalm? It's all about the revelation of God, right? The first half of it is about God's revelation in nature. His general revelation to all mankind. But the second half, starting in verse 7, it is all about the revelation of God to us in His Word. Right? And the very first thing that David establishes here is the authority and the majesty of the Word of God. I want you to look at this with me. The authority and the majesty of the Word of God. In verses 7 through 9, here's what he does. He uses a series of couplets. And what he does is, he he uses a series of couplets to describe the Word of God. First, he uses a word or a phrase that 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 is descriptive of the word or, or that that refers to an aspect of God's word then he uses a word that is descriptive of God's word and then he uses a phrase or some words to describe the effect that the word of God should have upon someone who is in covenant relationship with Yahweh right so you see descript or a, a, a statement about the word you know, a word that's used to, uh, uh, to an aspect of God's word, then a description of it, and then how we ought to respond or what it does in us. So let's take these couplets just kind of one by one. Look what he says first. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, I want to make sure we really understand what David is saying here. I want, to, I want us to understand how, what David, how he's using that phrase, the law of God, okay? Because lots of times we use it in a restrictive sense to speak only of the Mosaic law. But that is not how David is using that phrase here. He's using it in a comprehensive way to refer to the whole counsel of the Lord, not just the law of Moses. In fact, the word that's translated here as the law of God, the word simply means the instruction or the teaching of God. As Spurgeon says, he means not merely the law of Moses, but the doctrine of God, the whole run and rule of sacred writ. The whole run and rule of sacred writ. Nobody puts words together like Spurgeon, except inspired authors of the Scripture, right? So... So he's looking at the whole of Scripture, David is, that God has given to us. The Bible, for instance, that we hold in our own hands. And David says, it is perfect. It is perfect. The law of the Lord is is perfect. It is whole, he's saying. It's complete. It is sufficient for our every need. It is helpful, is another way that you can translate that word. It, It has perfect integrity. In other words, what he's saying is, when you've got the word of the Lord, when you've got the law of God, that is all that you need. It is complete. 
as the revelation of divine truth. It is complete as a word from God to govern our lives. It is sufficient to tell us of the glory and the majesty of God, of His power as Creator, of His holiness as Lord. It's sufficient to tell us about our fallenness in Adam and to explain God's sovereign plan for redemption and how we are to live in a manner then that pleases Him. It tells us how to be redeemed. It tells us how to be restored to fellowship with Him and to enjoy an ongoing and a growing relationship with Him. All that we need is in the Word of God. It is perfect and complete unto itself. We don't need human opinions. We don't need human ideas. We don't need philosophy and psychology and everything else. We don't need Immanuel Kant to tell us how we ought to think about life. Or any of those other guys with really strange names. All we need is the Word of God. All we need is the Word of God. Because it revives the soul. It revives the soul. That Hebrew word that's translated as as reviving there, it can mean a number of things. It can mean converting. It converts the soul or, or restoring. It restores the soul or refreshing or transforming. But the idea is this, that the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, right? He employs the the Word of God for His use. And when He does that, Scripture is so powerful and so complete that it alone, wielded by the Holy Spirit, can turn the stony heart of man to flesh. And can turn that heart of man from himself and from sin to God. And convert and bring a dead soul to life and impart salvation, and transform the whole person. It's not just that the Word of God's the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to create faith in you, and so which you are, so, and by which you are saved. It's that, not only that, the Word of God is what the Holy Spirit uses in you to sanctify you, and to make you more like Jesus Christ, to renew and refresh a once sin-addled soul. That's the worth of the Word of God. It's the instrument of renewing and recovering the soul. Do you understand? That's the idea here. Of of renewing the mind and the emotions and the passions and the will of man. That is the first, most basic, most beautiful thing about the Word of God. But David's not done. He says the testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord. That's a great word. It points us to the idea that this, when you are reading Scripture, you are encountering God's testimony about Himself. That's the idea of that. When you read Scripture, you're not just reading a bunch of, you know, random things. You are reading, you are encountering God's testimony about Himself. Scripture is not just a disconnected set of precepts or spiritual maxims. It's the very revelation of God's person. It's the very revelation of God's person. And that word sure means this. It means that it's certain and it's reliable because it's been established and verified by God. Right? Inspected and verified by God. Remember when you used to buy Fruit of the Loom? Nobody buys Fruit of the Loom anymore because that's not cool enough. Right? But back in the day, you know, when I was a kid and we went to JCPenney, and got directed to the Husky section as soon as we walked in. That was always wonderful. Um, we used to buy Fruit of the Loom t-shirts. And it was cool because you'd open up that pack of Fruit of the Loom t-shirts and it would have in there like inspected by number whoever. 
So you knew that those t-shirts were good to go, right? You knew that they'd been thoroughly examined. And that is the idea here, that, that the Word of God is thoroughly examined by God and put forth by God. And so it's a dependable and a consistent foundation upon which you can build your life and your eternal destiny. The law, the testimony of the Lord is sure. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. And nobody likes to think of themselves as simple, right? That's not, if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, you're such a simple guy. You have to ask yourself, what does he mean? Right? You mean simple like stupid? Or do you mean like simple like uncomplicated? One's a, one is a, is, a, is a, you know, compliment. The other one is, well, it's not. Right? When we read here that it makes wise the simple, that word simple is decidedly not a compliment. Okay? Somebody who is simple in this context means, well, really what that word comes from is an expression meaning an open door. Okay? And what it gives you the image of is this. Somebody, the person that's simple is somebody who does not know when to shut his mind to falsehoods. He doesn't know when to shut his mind to impure teaching. It describes somebody that is easily seduced or confused, somebody who's undiscerning, somebody who who really is kind of ignorant and gullible, okay? But good news, God makes that person wise. God's word makes that person wise. And wise means someone who not merely knows some fact, but he was actually skilled in discernment and applying that truth, applying some understanding to, to the way in which they live, to the way in which they walk. They're skilled in evaluating ideas. They're skilled in evaluating teaching in light of scriptural truth. And they hold to the truth. The word of God takes the simple mind which, let's just be honest, compared to God, all of us are simpletons, correct? Right? It takes those of us with simple minds, and it shows us how to live in a way that honors the Lord. You remember the words of Jesus, right? You'll remember these as soon as I'm quoted, I quote them to you. Over in Matthew chapter 7, and starting in verse 24, he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the what? rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man a simpleton who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it, right? We ought to reverence the word of God. We ought to receive it with honor and with great thanksgiving because the the word of God, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple and we need to be made wise, don't we? Then David says, the precepts, of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right. What are precepts? Well, precepts are divine principles and guidelines for conduct and character. Okay? It's the commandments that we're talking about. Since God created us and since He knows how we must live in order to magnify His glory, He has given to us in Scripture every principle we need for godly living. 
right? Every principle that we need for godly living from beginning to end, even from the very beginning, the obedience of faith, right? Gospel is not a suggestion, it's a command. Repent and believe. From the very beginning, the obedience of faith all the way through our lives, right? When David says that God's precepts here are right, what he means is, is that God's word and only God's word is, 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 is fitting, can reveal what's fitting and upright, what is righteous and, and straight. There is no crookedness with God. There is no confusion with, with God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But what God says is straight. It's good. You can take it to the bank. And it lays out, the idea is that the truth of the scripture lays out the proper path through the difficult maze of life. You ever been looking at one of those mazes, you know, you know when you talk about those mazes where you try to, isn't it interesting sometimes you see those mazes and you're looking at it, you're trying to figure out the route and sometimes the guy that draws up the maze to be a smart aleck will make it like it's like a straight line and you don't even see it because you're so focused on the maze, all those twists and turns. The word of God does for us is, is make us to see clearly the path through the maze of life. And so as we follow his word, what it does is, what, what he says is, it rejoices our hearts. It causes the heart and the conscience of the believer to rejoice, to be gladdened. We find the word of God to be fitting and to be joy producing. God's word's not a burden to take away our fun. It's rather a blessing to give you real joy in every circumstance of life. But until you believe that, you'll never receive the word of God as you should. Then David continues saying, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Again, he uses another word here that stresses the Bible's authoritative nature. That word commandment refers to orders that are given that are expected to be obeyed. God's word, beloved, is not a book of suggestions, right? It's divine mandates are authoritative and binding on every human soul. This, this book doesn't just contain the word of God. It is the word of God. Be careful with those neo-orthodox theologians in the world that will say, well, this, this book contains the word of God, but it also contains some errors. It also contains some things that, you know, are just human things and human ideas. But, but don't worry. Don't worry. God's equipped me to show you what is actually the word of God in here and what isn't. And you know what's remarkably, you know, often the case with those guys is that the clear authoritative commands in scripture that they have a problem with are the very sins they commit are the very sins that our culture is, is, is like just enmeshed in and they don't want to upset the apple cart because they want to keep the till full. This doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Period. I have no... I'm just going to be honest. You know, there are some people that when I discuss with them these kinds of things, like some, you know, other pastors slash 
perhaps theologians, whatever. I mean, there are, there are things that I'll discuss with them. There are things that I'll, 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 I'll go back and forth with them about. Like I have a buddy of mine, you know, who's a, who's a Orthodox Presbyterian pastor and we go back and forth about child, you know, baby baptism and and baptism of believers. And we'll argue about eschatology, but I want to tell you right now, I have zero patience. Like, I mean, zero patience with the so-called pastors that will say that will try to denigrate the word of God in that way and try to say, well, it just contains, no, this is the word of God. And if you don't believe that, then you ought to get out of the pulpit and sit down and shut up. And I mean that really in all love. No, I do. Because to continue to preach, believing that is to bring condemnation on your soul. The Word of God is authoritative and binding on every single heart. And when David, when David describes the commandment here of the Lord as being pure, he means this. He means the Word of God is not mystifying. It's not hard to understand what it says. Now, you can't savingly believe it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, right? But there are plenty of people who can tell you, who are not saved, who can tell you what God's plan of redemption is because they can read English. And they believe that words have meanings, right? But what what he's saying here when he calls it pure is that it's not confusing, it's not puzzling. What we call that in, in reform circles is the doctrine of perpiscuity. The doctrine of perpiscuity. It means basically this, that that all things, this is the Reformed position, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in due use of ordinary means, that means sitting down and reading, may attain to a sufficient understanding of it. Now, Scripture, to the believer, obviously, has been opened up to even greater and fuller understanding. And for the believer, David says here, it enlightens our eyes. What does he mean by that? Well, our eyes are what? The organs by which we see where we do what? Walk. Scripture, because of its purity, enlightens our eyes. It shows us how and where we should walk. It brings understanding in the place of ignorance. It brings order in the place of confusion. It brings light in the place of spiritual and moral darkness. And it stands in stark contrast to the muddled musing and confusing opinions of lost men who are themselves blind and unable to discern the truth or live righteously. God's Word clearly reveals the blessed, hopeful truths that we can never deduce on our own. Amen? David continues saying, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I want you to see what David does here. It's pretty cool. David speaks here of the effect that the Word of God should produce in a believer. He speaks here about the effect that it ought to have in us. And then he says something about it, right? Look what it, he, what he says here. He says the word, you know, the fear of the Lord is clean. Here's, here's what he's getting at. The word of the Lord, beloved, is intended to produce in us fear of the Lord. 
It's intended to produce in us reverential awe and respect. It's meant to produce in us veneration for God. It's meant to create in us a godly fear and an awe and a wonder. It's made, it, it's, it's given to us to, so that we might see that God is God and we are not. We're not even close. It should create in us trembling hearts. It should create in us deep humility. It should create in us astonishment at who God is. When we read the Word of God, when we immerse ourselves in the truth of the Word of God, it ought to create in us a regard for God that holds supremacy in our affections. It ought to captivate us. God ought to captivate us. I remember seeing my first tornado personally, like, a, like face-to-face, like not on TV. We were living in Fort Worth, and you know, I'd heard about tornadoes, and I'd seen the effects of tornadoes. I'd never actually seen a tornado. So we're living in Texas. We're living in Fort Worth, and I remember I had gotten up. It was a Monday morning. I went down to this food bank that, that, we, that we were partners with in, in, in Fort Worth. It was about 30 miles from our church. I went and took my truck to go and pick up food, right? So while I'm there, and I'm out there and I'm loading up food, there is a, a tornado, uh, like, warning goes off, like the horn thing. I didn't even know what it was because I didn't grow up, you know, in the tornado belt. But, so I just ignored it. I did notice that a lot of other people were, like, going inside, but I, I was thinking, I got to load this stuff up, right? And there was a lot there. So I'm loading it up and I'm loading it up and I'm just kind of ignoring everything. And I hear this sound. And that's the first thing. And then I started to feel the wind. And then I started seeing stuff flying through the air. And then I'm looking down this street, right, that is directly in front. And one moment I can see all the way down the street. And then in the next moment, I cannot see anything except this dirty swirl. And it was at that moment, praise God, that this lady that worked at that food bank saw that idiot me was still standing out on the loading dock. But when I saw that thing, I froze. It wasn't like, oh, there's a tornado. I better run. It was like, what is that? And if it hadn't been for this little itty bitty lady, 5'1 maybe, Gretch would have been a widow. And my children never would have existed. Because I stood there and I watched the thing. And here, if you've ever seen a tornado up close, it almost, like it beckons you. I know that sounds crazy, but you see it and you're scared, but you still want to get closer. Just a little bit closer. How close can I get to that thing, right? I was in awe of an expression of the glory of God. An expression. How much more, beloved, ought we be in awe? Ought we to be in awe of the glory of God revealed in His Word? Fearing the Lord is a quality that is greatly absent in the modern church. And yet it is essential for our souls. 
The word for enduring here, when it says that the fear of the Lord is clean, that means it's pure, it's right in God's eyes. This idea of, of enduring means that you take a stand, you remain, it remains, it abides. What David is saying here is that the one who truly fears the Lord, who honors Him as God, who really reverences Him, will stand with the Lord forever. In contrast to the shifting uncertainties of this world and the instability of fallen humanity, the word of the Lord will make God's people resolute and secure in their stand with the Lord. That's the idea. And we need it, man. And even more as we see the day approaching. Then last, David says of God's word, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What he's saying is, is, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sums it up by saying, look, the rules of the Lord, rules means the verdicts, the judgments, the ruling, the decrees of the Lord, all of them are true. They are faithful. They are reliable. It is true doctrine. They're all true. And it is God's perfect and right standard for judging men and women and for determining the eternal destiny of every single person. The Word of God is God's basis for His judgment. And His judgment is righteous altogether. It is in complete accordance with His character. In other words, if you read the Word of God, you will never be astonished by the judgments of God because they are in line with the Word of God. The revelation of his character. And this is an amazing picture of the word of God, isn't it? This is an amazing picture that we need. It's why John Calvin said, and and if you've received an email from me, you know this quote. As soon as men depart, even in the smallest degree from God's word, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods and vanities, impostures, errors, and deceits. God's word is supreme. And nobody knows who penned these words, but they are spot on. Some, some unknown author wrote, this book contains the mind of God, at least what we can understand of it. It contains the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven is opened. And the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand object. Our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory and rule the heart and guide the feet. Read it slowly, read it frequently, and read it prayerfully. It is given you in this life and will be opened in the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. will reward the greatest labor and will condemn all who trifle. With its sacred contents. I don't know who wrote that. I wish I could give him credit. But nobody knows. But that's spot on. Beloved, that's how we have to regard the word of God. And if we do, it'll be life to our souls. 
And the response that we see from David's heart here will take place in our own hearts. Let's just look at it quickly. I don't want to... Let's look at it. First response of David's soul is to treasure the Word of God. Look what he says in verses 10 and 11. He says, More to be desired are they, the words of God, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Here's what David's saying in essence, right? He's a king. He's a rich guy. He knows what gold is, and he knows what gold can accomplish, and he knows what gold can buy, right? And yet the words of David are these. In essence, if you've got a choice between God's word and riches, pick God's word. Even much fine riches, you pick God's word. And here's why. Because it alone can convert and revive your soul. That's why you need to choose the Word of God over the riches of the world. And it's far better. It's far better than the sweetness of honey. It is greater. I'm telling you, David's saying. By example, by experience, it is greater than any sensory pleasure I have ever engaged in. That's what David's saying. It alone can satisfy. It alone can instruct the soul. And in keeping and in obeying the word of God, there is a great, great reward. David, look, he's a guy who understands the truth of things, beloved, or or the worth of things. And he knows that the word of God is worth much because it is by God's word that David himself is warned. And that's a word that means that he's taught and admonished and made to shine. In other words, it's through the Word of God and and faithfulness to it that we shine with God's glory. And it's also through keeping His Word and cleaving to it and holding fast to the Word of God and the God of the Word that we're promised great reward both in this life, right? Peace with God, joy, the joy of salvation, the blessing of obedience, the increase in wisdom, true and deepening fellowship with God, and you know what else? A clear conscience. A clear conscience, which is a reward of its own, isn't it? Isn't it? They promise reward in this life and in the next, right? An inheritance, undefiled, unfading with Christ in heaven. There's nothing more valuable than the Word of God. We see that, right? In the heart of David's, in the cry of David's heart. What's the cry of his heart? Well, the heart cry of the soul that treasures God's Word is this. Look at it in verses 12 through 14. He writes, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What's David want? What's he after? How does he long to live? What does he want to define him? Well, he wants godliness and uprightness uprightness and blamelessness and innocence to describe him, right? That's what he wants to be the defining character of his life. And so he begins with this rhetorical question. Who can discern his errors? And it's a good question, right? On our own, none of us can. You realize that, right? None of us on our own can discern the errors of our hearts. David's saying, I am not really good at at examining my own heart apart from the plumb line of God's Word. Why is that? Well, because, you know, he does what we all do. He applies his pride and his self-will and self-justification and excuse-making. 
Apart from the word of God, we can never really see the true, you know, nature of our souls. We can never really see the true degree of our obedience to God. Nobody, apart from the blazing holy standard of God's word, can look at himself or herself and be objective, right? And I confess, I confess, you know, I, apart from God's word, I don't know my own sinfulness. I don't. Every way of man, Proverbs 21, 2 says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Right? The Lord weighs the heart. So David's saying, look, I, I look at myself and I cannot find all the sin in me. I don't know the things from which I need to repent. Right? I just, I don't know. I need your word. And as long as this, look in verses, again, at verses 12 and 13. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. That's number one. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. His desire first is, Lord, declare me innocent. Let me be forgiven and acquitted of my hidden faults. So what are hidden faults? They're just that. There's faults that are hidden, right? They're not hidden from God. They're hidden from us. They're hidden from our sight, from our own seeing. Whether they're sins of commission, things that we do that we shouldn't do, or sins of omission, things that we ought to do that we don't. Whatever they are, we don't see them like we should. And there could be several reasons that they're hidden to our sight. Maybe we just haven't seen clearly in the scripture what's commanded of us. That could be. Maybe, you know, we've established such a pattern of sin that we're comfortable with that sin. And so we're sort of oblivious to it. Maybe you've plowed over your conscience and plowed over conviction so long that you can't hear it when it speaks. David recognizes that kind of sin in him. And so he asks of the Lord, declare me innocent. In other words, clear me, acquit me of my sins, justify me. In other words, here's the deal. We need the word of God, beloved, to dig up the secret places and reveal our hidden faults so that we can confess them and repent of them and apply the gospel to them and put them under the blood of Jesus so we can enjoy the fullness of forgiveness and fellowship and freedom that comes with it, right? The fullness of it. We need God's word so that we see where we fail, And so that we understand how we should walk. But then second, I want you to see this. He also says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What are presumptuous sins? I'll tell you what they are. Presumptuous sins are are, are willful. They are rebellious, arrogant sins. They are committed with forethought. And in defiance of God's word, they're committed in the face of conviction. They're committed with a certain knowledge that they're wrong. They are intentional sins that a person commits that says, you know what? I know this is sin, but. And then fill in your foolish reason there. David knew the way to those sins, didn't he? Didn't he? All you'd have to speak is one word to him. One name. Bathsheba. Right? He knows the way to those sins. He knows the far-reaching consequences of those sins. He knows the power of those sins to enslave and to destroy. And so his prayer is, Lord, keep me back. Restrain me. Keep them. Keep me far from them. Do not let them have dominion over me. David is saying, God, give me a strength that's greater than my own. I want you to notice, beloved, take note of this. He's not pleading for forgiveness of these sins. Do you see that? He's not pleading for forgiveness. 
Rather, he's pleading for the prevention of them. He is, he is pleading and longing to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He does not want to be under the dominion and the rule and the power of sin. Let me just say a little something there. It is true, beloved, that there is forgiveness and cleansing for even presumptuous sins. For someone who is truly repentant, there's forgiveness even for those sins. David's life proves it. Peter's life proves it. If it weren't the case, none of us would be preserved and persevere in our faith. But I want you to hear me when I say this to you. If someone continues in a lifestyle and a pattern of presumptuous sin, of deliberate and willful sin against God, of, I know I shouldn't do this, but... Let him or her not fool themselves into thinking that he or she is a saved man or woman. You are not. A continuing of lifestyle of presumptuous sin proves that you're lost no matter what your claims are to be a Christian. There are some of you who are thinking right now, maybe, perhaps not, but there are some of you that may be thinking right now, that is a pretty dogmatic statement. For you to make you're right it is but it's not my opinion it's not my opinion the writer of hebrews says for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? The idea is that's in quotations, supposedly sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. Beloved, the sincere desire of a true believer is keep me back from presumptuous sins. And there are many ways that God does that in his providence. There's many ways, but the way above all others is by the actual operation of the heart and the will and the desires, the actual operation upon our hearts and our wills and our desires by the Holy Spirit through his use of the word of God revealed by Jesus Christ, the word of the Lord. Listen, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, right? It's God's answer to the prayer of this text. And if we are not immersing ourselves in the Word of God, we're giving the Holy Spirit a dull scalpel with which to work on our hearts. And then notice then this. David's longing before the face of God. He prays, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see why David has a great esteem for the Word of God. By what he calls the Lord. By what he calls Yahweh here. You're my rock. You're my place of refuge and rest. You're the foundation of my life. And you are my Redeemer. You're the one that has saved my soul from condemnation and death and hell. You are my whole life. You're my whole life. 
And so his prayer is, let the words of my mouth, what I say, and let the meditation of my heart, what I think, and therefore which forms the actions of my life, let them be according to the commandments of your word. Let them be acceptable. Let them be well-pleasing. Let my life please you. And that, beloved, is the longing. That longing of David's heart should be the longing of our own. That's a wonderful prayer. Isn't it? Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is a great prayer. You know what that is? That's the prayer of a God lover who loves God's word. And now here's the thing. That kind of heart can only be produced by a real conviction of the authority and the majesty and the worth and the sufficiency and the power of the Word of God. You can't have eternal life, nor can you maintain a dynamic, powerful, vibrant life in God if you don't treasure the Word of God. And David's writing this to us so that we would. So I'm going to wrap this all up, okay? Let's wrap this all up. What does this mean for us? Here's what it means for us, beloved. If we're truly Christians... Now, not just church members, not just, you know, nominal Christians, Christian in name only, or, or, or cultural Christians, but if we truly confess Christ in all sincerity as Lord, right, in all sincerity, then we must treasure the Word of God and seek that it would have its full effect on our souls, right? Again, as I mentioned earlier, God's Word must hold supreme weight in our lives and not our opinions, not our supposed wisdom and our ideas of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Not our presumption of what is right and true. God's word is absolute truth. And it must hold supremacy in our hearts and in our minds. It must fashion our thinking and our living. It's got to be the essential foundation of our lives. I mean, really, can I just, here's what it just comes down to. I'm just going to, really simply it comes down to this. Either scripture is the word of God or it isn't. I mean, that's really it. Either it is the Word of God or it's not. Either you believe it's the Word of God or you don't, right? But if you choose not to believe that the Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God, you put yourself in great peril. You put yourself in great peril. Either Scripture is the Word of God or it isn't. Either it commands our lives or it doesn't. But there really isn't a middle ground here. And if it's the Word of God then it's not partially true, it's not kind of true, and it's not open to human revision. In fact, as John MacArthur put it, and I love this, man, listen to what he says. This is so spot on. He said, Scripture does not hold derived authority bestowed by humans. Rather, it's the original authority of God. In other words, whether anybody says, oh, I agree, that's the Word of God, or not, it is. It doesn't need, it doesn't need your, your stamp of approval. It stands forever. And every jot and tittle of it will be fulfilled. Or Christ is a liar and we know he's not. He goes on to say, it doesn't change with the times or the culture or the nation or the ethnic background. Rather, it is the unalterable authority of God. In other words, it doesn't matter what's going on in our world, what the latest crazy train goofy idea is. It doesn't matter. The Word of God speaks authoritatively to it. It's not one authority among many possible spiritual authorities. Rather, it's the exclusive spiritual authority of God. It's not the Word of God plus the Book of Mormon or plus the Koran or plus whatever. Those aren't holy books. They're not holy books. 
Always makes me laugh when people say that, like, like, oh, the holy whatever. No. Holy is a word that is to be attributed only to God. The true God. The real God. The God of the scriptures. Therefore, this is called the Holy Bible. Or the Holy Scriptures. Or the Holy Word of God. He goes on to say it's not an authority that can be successively challenged or rightfully overthrown. Rather, it is the permanent authority of God. It's not relativistic or subordinate authority. Rather, it's the ultimate authority of God. It's not merely a suggestive authority. Rather, it is the obligatory authority of God. In other words, if we say that the Scripture is the Word of God, then we need to act like it. That's the point, right? So let's bring this all back around, okay? I'm almost done. Three more paragraphs. Here we go. You ready? Let's bring this back around. When it comes to these commands in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, and then the rest of the ethical instructions in this epistle, right? Or in any in the Word of God. How should we receive them? Well, number one, we receive them as the authoritative Word of God. And we must meditate on these exhortations and commands. We need to turn them over in our minds and in our hearts and consider them thoroughly. To put it in, you know, natural terms, we need to chew on these words. Consider the what and the why and the how. Not just pass over them quickly and tick them off in our minds as being true and good and right and agreeing with them and then just moving on. They're not the words of a man. They're the very words of God. And so we engage, okay, each one of these individual commands. Let love be genuine, for instance. We engage that that phrase and we see, what is it that God is saying to me here? What is love really? Who defines it? Who's the greatest example of it? How is that to be seen in my life? What, what is God saying to me here? What does He require of me and of us? As those who have been brought from spiritual death to life, who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, who've been raised to walk in the newness of life and freed from the dominion of sin so that we can walk in a manner that pleases God and that reflects our Lord and our Master and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to ask ourselves questions. And we're going to do this as we go through these commands. We need to ask ourselves questions that come directly from the teaching of Psalm 19. Okay? And I'll go a little slow. Hopefully you can catch up with me. But if you can't, you'll get the purpose. You'll get the point. We take that command and we say to ourselves, if the Word of God is perfect and we know that it, that it is and that it revives the soul, then how does this command, this text, this verse... Turn my soul, renew my soul toward godliness. If God's word is sure and it makes the simple wise, how are these words and this command superior to the ways of fallen and ignorant man? If God's word is right and it rejoices the heart, how will this command, how do these words fuel my joy in Christ? If God's word is pure and it enlightens my eyes so that I see the way in which I must walk, how do these words lead me in the path of following and glorifying Christ? If 
God's word produces a proper fear of the Lord. What do these words teach me about the Lord? And how does, how does, you know, what we learn, what I learn about God from these words, how does it produce in me a greater reverence and honor toward Him? If God's word is true and righteous altogether, how do these words make me grow in righteousness? And then we ask ourselves, do I really treasure His word as I should? Do I long to be conformed to it and therefore to the character of my Savior? Is it really, truly my desire that my words and my meditations and therefore my life be acceptable in God's sight, my rock and my redeemer? Or do I, don't, or do I fail to really think about that at all? Do I want to be kept back from sin and pursue righteousness? How then must I seek to apply these words to my life? See, that's how you engage these commands, beloved, so that you, that you bring every drop of honey out of them that you can. That's how you approach these commands. If we're Christians, this is how we approach God's Word. It's how the Word of God applied to our souls by the Holy Spirit will have its full God-honoring and soul-strengthening effect in our lives. But I want to close with this. Our goal... Beloved, our goal is not merely to do what God says because He is God, but to desire what God says because He's good. Not merely to pursue righteousness, but to, listen to me now, prefer it. Prefer it. For those who are in this room today who are not in Christ, I want you to know that the Word of God is true. Whatever else you may have heard before you came in here today, the Word of God is true. And it, is, it defines reality, and it alone is the revelation of God to man, and it speaks with perfect authority and with absolute certainty and with unbreakable truth. And here's what the Word of God says to you. God is holy, perfect, righteous, without stain or sin or blot, or blemish. God is absolutely a holy, righteous God, and He hates sin. But you, outside of Christ, you are a sinner. You do what God hates. You reject His law, and you reject His commandments. You don't seek for Him at all. You do the very things that God hates. And you are under His just wrath and condemnation even now. And if you continue in your path of rejection and rebellion against the God who reveals Himself in Scripture, then you will die a miserable death. And you will suffer greater misery in an eternal hell where you will Pay in full the penalty of your sins against the Almighty God forever. In a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of horrific pain. Physically. Spiritually. Emotionally. Mentally. But the scripture offers you life. The word of God also says that God in his infinite love 
and awesome mercy and incalculable grace determined to save sinners from their plight. Not everybody, but those who would believe, who would repent of their sins, who would turn away from their sins, and who would believe in God's plan of redemption, who would believe in the person of His Holy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom He sent into this world, and who willingly came, and who took upon Himself human flesh, and lived the life of obedience that you would not and did not do and by which you earned condemnation. He lived a life of perfect obedience so that he might give to those who would believe in him a a record of righteousness not their own, but his. And then he died on a cross. He, he, He gave himself up to be crucified. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it up willingly. And he was crucified He was placed on the cross by by sinful men. God the Father placed upon his shoulders the entirety of the guilt of all of the sin of everyone who would believe, past, present, and future. He put it on Jesus and he crushed his son. Scripture says it was the will of the Father to crush his son. Why? So that sinners could be saved. He poured out his wrath. Full, complete. For my every sin, he poured it on Jesus. And Christ died. And just before he died, he gave up his spirit. He said, it is finished. The debt is paid. The work is done. He died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. To prove that his sacrifice was acceptable in the eyes of the Father. And to demonstrate without question, he is the Son of God. With the power to save all who call upon him. With the power to save to the uttermost. And so I'm saying to you today this. If you have not come to Christ. If you have not repented of your sin and turned to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I am encouraging you to do it this morning. Do not remain under the condemnation. Do not remain under the clear condemnation that the word of God says all sinners are under but embrace the gift of Jesus Christ. Come to faith in Him this morning. Turn away from your sins. Confess Christ. Ask Him to save you. Confess Him as Lord and surrender your life to Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would take this Word and that You would apply it to our hearts powerfully and effectively. And I pray, Lord God, that we'd respond in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.